Well, as Brian already said, if you look up here in the banners, we're starting a 10-week series. If this, is, excuse me. <laughs> if this is your first Sunday with us, we're at, you came at a great time. We're going to be spending the next two and a half months in this letter called Galatians in the New Testament. So as we almost always do on Sunday mornings, I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and open to Galatians. It's near the back section of the Bible, uh, First and Second Corinthians, and then after... Uh, You'll find Galatians there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have black ones available for you. We'd love for you to take one out, be a first-hander with the Bible. It's on page 810. And that way you may find you get there before your neighbor does, okay? Galatians. We're going to look at that together. And today as we start, we're going to look at the first 10 verses. But what I want you to see at the beginning here is that just like the banners say, if you're able to multitask at the same time, in the notes there, Galatians teaches us to live in freedom. Galatians teaches us to live in freedom. And some of you say, I, I don't need Galatians, I'm an American. But have you ever noticed that you can live in a free country and not be free? You can have freedom and not be free. Or you can lose that freedom or misuse that freedom. And so one of the reasons we need this series is that this letter was written to Christians, and it really does help us understand how to live the Christian life in a way that we really do experience that freedom. Uh, some of you noticed yesterday on the news that at Fenway Park yesterday, they sang the Star Spangled Banner with extra gratitude and energy. And if you've ever sung the Star Spangled Banner, you know that it ends... Oh, the land of the free. free. I won't make you sing that high. <laughs> and the home of the brave. Well, Eugene Peterson makes an interesting observation as we start this series. He says, we live in a world awash in fantasies of freedom. We spend enormous sums of money and immense amounts of energy on these fantasies. We fantasize a free life variously, based variously on power, on sex, on fame, on leisure. Whole industries develop out of these fantasies. Careers are shaped by them. Political movements are launched and fueled by them, but the world we live in is conspicuously and sadly lacking in the experience of freedom. These fantasies are barren. They give birth to nothing in word or deed. For all our elaborate and expensive fantasies, the actual lives that most people live are filled with impotence, boredom, obscurity, and hassle. Living in the land of the free has not made us free. We're a nation of addicts and complainers. Being provided with freedom of religion has not made us free. Coercive cults and enslaving superstitions continue to proliferate. Assembling with people in church and listening to the ringing proclamations of freedom, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, has not made us free. Our churches are attended regularly by the inhibited, the obsessive compulsive, the fearfully defensive, enough of them to provide outside observers with a stereotype. But, he writes, not everything that has to do with freedom is fantasy. There are also realities of freedom. And Galatians helps us learn how to live in freedom. 
So we want to do that. But why do we need this series? I mean, what, what's the big deal? If we've already been given freedom in Christ, what's, what's, what's the reason why we're studying this? Well, if you're following along in the notes, what I hope you'll see is that sadly, it's possible to be burdened again in slavery. Sadly, it's possible to be burdened again in slavery. Uh, we may be given freedom. We may start out, you know, brand new followers of Christ. But it's only a matter of time sometimes until you look back and you'll see that that person's, oh my goodness, they've gotten back into an old pattern. I don't know about you, but I've been walking with Christ for over 30 years, and I'll just tell you that there, there are still some weeks, even in the last month, when I, when I walked into this room and I just remember thinking to myself, man, it seems like I keep doing the same thing over and over. What is that about? And in those moments, it's really important how I understand freedom, how I understand what Jesus can do. And so we're going to study this, and, and I, we, all I want to do today is get a couple things on the table. First, because this is six chapters long, I want to give an overview, some background, big picture of Galatians, so that when we read it, that we'll have a better idea. Uh, last night, my wife, before uh, she went to bed, uh, was she had her Bible there, and uh, she doesn't do that every night. I don't want to give you a picture of my wife that she's always holding a Bible before she goes to bed. But she was reading it, and as she closed the Bible and put it up, I said, hey, what, what are you reading? She says, I'm reading Galatians. I think she got that email that we encouraged everybody to do that. And so I said, oh, uh, you know, and she says, and then she, she just says this. She goes, you have your work cut out for you. <laughs> That gave me a boost of confidence, you know. And, uh, but she's right. This, this has got some challenging parts, so I hope the background helps. And the other thing today, just I want you to see in these opening verses, and then we're going to see it again, is I want to talk about what is the gospel. And how does understanding the gospel properly help us live in freedom? Because the truth is, is there's lots of definitions about the gospel floating around. Lots of ideas we have. For many of us, it just sounds like a churchy word. For years, I've tried to fully understand the gospel. And today, I'm not going to talk about an exhaustive understanding of the gospel. I just want to get it on the table because we're going to come back to it again and again. So um, why don't I pray and then we'll start looking at the background and dig in, okay? Lord, I want to pray for my friends in this room and for myself that if we are addicts and obsessive compulsives and really not as free as the Bible says we can be, I pray that in this next couple months that we'll begin to experience the hope you intended us to know. I want to pray for my friends here who don't yet believe in you. I pray that they'll sense a welcome here, a place where they can ask their questions and learn things here that might lead them to one day trust in you, maybe even today. So I pray, use our time together, be our teacher. As my wife said, I have my work cut out for me, but I believe that when you teach, things happen. In your name we pray, amen. So here's the background, okay? And by the way, I didn't ask you to read the opening verse there in the gray box there, uh, the, the first grade box, but this is our theme verse for the series, so let's read it together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And that's, again, that's a key verse, and, 
And I hope you see at the top there in the first line, I list all the different verses in Galatians that talk about this idea of freedom or being free. Okay? So here's the background of Galatians. Who writes the letter? Paul. Thanks for some of you helping me there. Uh, Paul used to be Saul, and he was a person that used to persecute the church. Uh, he met Jesus Christ on a Damascus road, and his whole life changed. And so Paul writes this letter, if you're following along, 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death. 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Some of you grew up in colleges or universities where you heard professors say, ah, the New Testament was written so long after these people lived. Not true. Not true at all. The manuscripts are quite clear on that. But the point is, is that this was probably Paul's earliest letter. Probably one of the first ones he ever wrote. Pry wrote it right after his first missionary journey. He took three major world-traveling missionary journeys, and he probably wrote it at this time. Second thing, who did he write it to? He wrote it to a group of churches, if you're following along, that he'd founded in what's now modern-day Turkey. It was actually a Roman province called Galatia. And uh, I, again, I don't know about you, but sometimes it just helps me to know where things are in the world. Some of us know that the Middle East is on the news a lot and what's happened in Israel and what's happening in Palestine and what's happening in Lebanon. But if you, if you go and you look at the Mediterranean Sea and you go to the right side of the Mediterranean Sea, on the, on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea, Israel's down here, and then you go through Lebanon, Syria, and as you wrap up over the top of the Mediterranean Sea, you come into this area now that's now called modern-day Turkey. And this is where Paul traveled on his first missionary journey. He left Antioch in Syria and made his way up into that area. And friends, imagine this. No one had ever heard of a guy named Jesus. No one had ever heard about what he taught. No one had ever heard his name. No one had ever heard what he did on the cross. And Paul has the privilege as well as the daunting challenge of bringing it into a group of people that weren't necessarily immediately jazzed by that news. And Paul figured out a way to spread that news and to start these churches. Again, if you look on that uh, Acts 13 through 14 there, I list that in the line above, it'll tell you about this first missionary journey. Uh, we know for sure where some of these cities probably were. Pisidian Antioch, there were several Antiochs in that area. Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, towns that mean nothing to us now, but they were real places. In fact, did you know that when Paul went on his first missionary journey, Lystra was especially memorable? Some people that got mad at Paul that had followed him all the way up into Turkey trying to oppose what he was teaching, turned the crowd on him, and he was stoned and left for dead. Now, I don't know if you've ever had people throw real rocks at you with the intent to kill you, but Paul had experienced that kind of hatred, that kind of kickback. So Paul was serious about getting the message to these other people and starting churches no matter what the opposition. The interesting thing, by the way, if you read that account in Acts 13 and 14, what you see is that Paul, the, the brothers and sisters were standing over him, he gets up. He goes back in and preaches again. Now, how would you like that if you just killed him? Or you just stoned him and you go, hey, we, we got rid of you. He said, I'm back. I'm back to teach you some more because you need to know about Jesus. So these, these people that he's writing to, he knew these people. He knew their names. He'd been to their towns. He'd helped start the churches. He talked to them a lot about what it would mean to be people who follow Jesus. 
So this letter is, again, written to Christians, okay? Third thing I hope you'll see is that what gets him to write this letter is that false teachers are disputing Paul's authority and teaching. False teachers are disputing Paul's authority and teaching. Now, this isn't just personal to him. This isn't out of his insecurity saying, hey, I'm mad because you should like me. You should think I'm important. No, he understands that because he is an apostle that has been sent by Jesus Christ, what people do with what he shares, they can hate him, but what they do with his authority that's been given by Jesus and what they do with his actual message, the gospel, is the ball game. And what happened is these false teachers, same ones that had followed him up and turned the crowd on him in Lystra, now they've gone back into those churches he's founded and they're trying to creep their way in and they're trying to pervert, corrupt, twist the gospel that he taught. And they're trying to change it into another gospel. And Paul goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you'll see in this letter that he starts the very first thing. We'll read it in just a minute. Paul, an apostle. And he's trying to explain to him what that means. Next week, Steve's going to unpack that a lot more because Paul goes into great length biographically. How did I get the authority that I claim to have? Where did it come from? And should you even listen to me? But this week, I want to talk about his message. I want to talk about the gospel. And I want us to see that what was happening is that these false teachers had come in and they were changing Paul's message. They were saying, you know, he's making it too easy. He just wants you to like him, which was not the case at all, but that's what they were saying. So Paul realizes he's got to write his, his friends that he found these churches with, and he's got to somehow, in a reasonable way, reason with them and help them come back to their senses. But there's a lot going on in this, and you're going to feel the heat in this letter. Um, if you follow along in the notes, you'll see one more thing, that these Galatian believers are turning to another gospel. These Galatian believers are turning to another gospel. Now, I don't know how much you know about the New Testament, but this Apostle Paul that we're talking about this morning, he wrote half the New Testament. He wrote 13 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. One of them is Galatians. We believe this is probably the earliest one he wrote. And just so you know, because of that, we can follow how he typically writes letters. And in every letter, except Galatians and, in a way, Titus, Paul starts by, after he's said some greetings that are pretty typical of how most letters are written in the ancient world, he usually does one of three things. He either prays for them, praises God for them, or thanks them. Does one of those three things. It's got that human warmth to it, because these are people he's either heard about or he's met. And in this letter, he absolutely goes right into it. He disregards all that. He goes right after them and says, I am astonished. And you'll notice, you're going, what gives? Like, why is he so hot? Is it because he's insecure? Is it because, no, because he understands that what you and I do with the gospel is the ballgame. It'll change whether or not we're truly free or not. It'll change whether or not we really live the life Jesus came or not. Uh, years ago, um, Vince Lombardi, considered by some to be one of the greatest football coaches of all time, the Green Bay Packers, was known for some of his heated words sometimes to his players. One day, during a practice session, he yelled at one of his players, got really firm with him, said, Caffrey, 
If you cheat in practice sessions, you will cheat in a game. A lot of coaches would have just stopped right there. But Lombardi continued, he said, and if you cheat in a game, you will cheat for the rest of your life, and I will not have it. Now, was Vince Lombardi being mean or loving? Was he concerned about his best interest or not? Absolutely. And when Paul writes here, what he's saying is this. If you cheat on the gospel, if you twist it, if you try and change it, if you pervert it or you corrupt it, even a little bit, you will live differently. You will lie in life. And I cannot have it. You, I care too much about you to let that go. So he writes this letter, friends, and this is what we have. So um, are you ready to look at it? Okay, here we go. I'll read through it with some comments, and then I want to talk about the gospel. I want you to pay a special attention to how often he mentions the gospel. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Notice he's starting off. He's quickly establishing this. Again, Steve will teach more on this next week. To the churches, excuse me, and all the brothers and sisters with me. Sometimes we have this idea that Paul was a lone ranger. Friends, he traveled in teams with people most of the time. And one of the things we learn is that when you come to know Jesus Christ, you come into a family. Brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, there were individual congregations, local fellowships there in Galatia that he had helped start. So they know who he is. Then here's a greeting. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you already know this, but I never cease to be fascinated by this. This was an interesting thing Paul did in his letters. In the ancient world, people had a way of greeting. In fact, if you go to some of those places today, they still will. Uh, among the Jewish believers, they would always greet you by saying, Shalom. Shalom. It's a Hebrew word that means peace, well-being, wholeness. And so it wasn't uncommon, being a Jew himself in the background, to say shalom. But as he traveled the world, because he was called to reach out to Gentile believers who weren't Jewish, as he went to these places like Turkey, they, he heard them say words like charis, which meant peace, joy. And so what Paul does here is he combines and says grace and peace. And now that, that would be enough right there just to bless someone like that to show, hey, I'm multi-international here. I'm, I can really, I can hang with both of you, you know. But instead he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, when they give you grace, when they give you peace, whew, you've been blessed. And you know what? For every believer, that's exactly what God's done. He has given us grace, which means his undeserved favor. Someone once spelled grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace and peace. Not only peace with God, but the peace of God. Grace and peace to you. Then it goes on. says in verse 4, this is the gospel in a very brief sentence, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Man, he rescued us. He gave himself for our sins 
to rescue us from the present evil age. Wow, I want to give him glory forever and ever. Amen. And then here we go. Verse 6. No praise, no prayer, no thank you, Galatians. Here we go. In fact, I've listed it in the notes. You want to try reading it with me? Second gray box so we can all read the same translation. Let's read it. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Okay, you want to hear it in modern vernacular? I am dumbfounded. I am flabbergasted. I am astonished. I am shocked. How did this happen? We went over this. We talked about this. What happened? What caused you to desert the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turn from the gospel that we talked about? What's going on? I'm writing this letter because I'm concerned for you. I will not have it without at least reasoning with you about what we talked about. And so he says in verse 7, he goes on, turn to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Literally, that sentence says you're turning to another gospel, which is not another. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Throwing you into confusion means they're troubling you. They're creating all kinds of chaos in your churches by what they're teaching because people are confused. They don't understand. And he says, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven, notice he includes himself, and he's using this hyperbole to say, like, even if an angel from heaven, who you, you should be able to trust, even if they did, should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. The word there is anathema. It means dedicated or devoted to destruction. Let them be under God's curse. That's how important this is, what we're talking about, he says. Verse 9, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And then verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Evidently, what these false teachers are saying is Paul's making it too easy. He's trying to just win you over. He's trying to say, you know, a message that you want to hear. The exact opposite is true, but he's dealing with that. Now, let me just stop and say something. Again, this is going to be a little bit like, sound like we're in school together. The name of these false teachers, there's a name for them that I want to put on the screen here. And, uh, can we all say it? It's Judaizers. Can you say that with me? Judaizers. Okay, some of you go, wow, we're way past what I expected to want to hear today. About, okay. But Judaizers were a group of people that were Jewish in background who believed in Jesus, but they said that when you believe in Jesus, you also still have to keep following Moses, the law of Moses. And you have to follow his ceremonial laws, his dietary laws, you have to follow, you know, the rite of circumcision, all those things. You've got to keep being Jewish, in other words. And so as Paul would travel to Gentile people who hadn't come out of a Jewish background, he was going, these people would go, like, what? Like, we have to be Jewish in order to be, to complete our Christianity? 
This would be like us saying to a new convert, now, it's good that you've trusted in Jesus, but you, now you've got to become Baptist. Which I don't know if some of you think that's what we're about here, but that's not what we're about here. We happen to be a Baptist church, but that is not what we're trying to do is make more Baptists. You've probably never heard us talk much about being Baptist. What we want to do is help people trust in Christ. And so they, they created this kind of confusion. John Stott says something helpful. Let me read it to you. He says, the false teachers were evidently Judaizers, whose gospel is summarized in Acts 15. By the way, if you want to read Acts 15, you know, I already mentioned Acts 13 and 14, total extra credit. Acts 15 shows that this issue got so hot in the early church that they all traveled down to Jerusalem where these Judaizers showed up. And they, they discuss, what do we do? What do we teach people now when they come to know Christ? Do we got to tell them to also believe in Moses? So here's what it says. Whose gospel is summarized in Acts 15.1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They did not deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, but they stressed that you must be circumcised and keep the law as well. In other words, you must let Moses finish what Christ has begun. Or rather, you yourself must finish by your obedience to the law what Christ has begun. You must add your works to the works of Christ. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. This doctrine, Paul simply will not tolerate. What? Add human merits to the merit of Christ and human works to the work of Christ? God forbid. The work of Christ is a finished work, and the gospel of Christ is a gospel of free grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, without any mixture of human works or merit. It is due solely to God's gracious call and not any good works on our own. But these Judaizers were confusing people. They were troubling people. And even in Acts 15, they say, we've heard that some people are troubling you. Same word. So now, Paul says, so it's really important that you understand what the gospel is. Because they're teaching another gospel. So in the time that we have left, I want to talk to you about what is the gospel. And friends, I'm not going to be able to say this exhaustively, but I think some of the things that I want to share with you may be helpful to you today. So I want to serve it up this way. As I study the scriptures, as we look at Galatians, there's really four big ideas, again, about the gospel that we can say. But here's what they are. The gospel is a message. The gospel is a way. The gospel is a person. And the gospel is a relational invitation. Now let me just unpack that. First, if you're following along, notice that the gospel is a message. It's good news. Christ makes us right with God, if you're following along. It's good news that Christ makes us right with God. Now, I don't know if you saw this already, but five times in the verses we just read, the word gospel got mentioned. You may not have caught that, but if you go on to verse 11, that's six times in 11 verses. That means he's thinking about it a lot. And it's 12 times in the letter to Galatians total. So gospel, gospel, gospel keeps coming up because he wants people to understand there's a lot hanging in the balance of what you understand about the gospel and what you do with the gospel. So first, understand that it's a message. The word gospel literally means good news. I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, sometimes when I go caroling with people, we sing this song. Good tidings we bring to you and your kin. We wish you a merry Christmas. Christ and a happy new year. Good tidings, we bring. And these good tidings are especially meaningful if we realize, like the Bible says, that we're in such deep weeds spiritually. We are so far from God on our own merits that we need to be rescued 
by him. We need him to die for our sins in our place because it's the only way we can be made right with God. And a lot of people say, well, why is it such good news? Because the bad news is so bad. The bad news is, is that we are worse than we thought we were. The good news is he loves us more than we thought he did. I love how Tim Keller says it. He says, Paul will explain to us that the truth of the gospel changed life from top to bottom. They transform our hearts, our thinking, and our approach to absolutely everything. The gospel, the message that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope, creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth, for obedience and love. Galatians is all about the gospel, which all of us need throughout all of our lives. What I want us to see this morning is that for most people, when they hear the gospel, they think of it as a set of ideas that you either believe in your head or not. But the gospel is a message, but it's a message about what God has done and is doing and wants to do in people's lives. And it all is based on what Jesus Christ has done, not on what we do. It involves what we do later, but it all has to do with what Jesus Christ has done. Now look at these verses in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And what this means is that Christ accomplished on the cross when he said, it is finished. He did everything necessary to bring us back to God, to rescue us, to pay for every sin we've ever committed or every will. He has done everything to make it possible for us to be made right with God. Does anybody want to say amen? That is good news, friends. And if it's not good news to you, it's probably because you don't believe that the bad news is as bad as it is, or you're afraid to believe the good news is as good as it is. And Jesus wants you to believe it. It's good news. But friends, the gospel is not just a set of ideas. It's also a way of life. It's not just a way to begin the gospel, begin life with Christ. The gospel has everything to do with the way we live every day after that. That means that not only do we receive the gospel as a gift, as a message given to us, but also it means that we live the gospel, that we actually can live out the gospel. What do I mean? If you're following along, the gospel is a way. It means learning to live by relying on Christ. It means learning to live by relying on Christ. I thought about this this morning. No matter what I'm doing, it can be the most menial task. It can be the most unimportant task. It can be something I've done a thousand times or something I've never done before. Do you realize that the gospel says is that now Jesus Christ lives in you, lives in me, if you have trusted in him, if you rely on him. But in an ongoing way, we continue to rely on him. He's the one that not only makes us right with God, but keeps us right with God. Our standing cannot be shaken because he's in our life. And that doesn't mean that there aren't things that don't need to be changed. It just means that he'll help us change those. We rely on him. We trust in him. Some of you know this verse, and we're going to look at it in a couple weeks. Galatians 2.20, Paul says this. I have been crucified with Christ. That's his way of saying, when Christ died, he died for me, and I put my trust in what he did for me. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith every day in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian life is a way. It's the gospel. It's good news. It means that I don't have to do anything else in life without Christ. It means for this, we have Jesus. It means that for this, Jesus has us. And that's incredible. The last idea that I wanted to share here before I get to the last line is this, is that the gospel is a person. In fact, I was thinking about this. Whenever you read the word gospel, if you want to, you can always just substitute the word Jesus, and it'll still make sense. We preach Jesus, the message of Jesus, because it's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you're following along, it means Jesus Christ living in us by his spirit. Jesus says, when you put your trust in me, I will come into your life. Now, you won't be able to see me physically, but by my spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lived in me, I will give him to you. He's just like me. That's why sometimes the Holy Spirit's called the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord, and he will live in your life, and I will live in you. But I'm a person. The gospel is, is that though we don't deserve it, Jesus Christ wants to live in your life or mine. Is that circuit blowing or what? I mean, that just blows my mind. I know who I am without Christ many times to think that he would want to live in this house, inside this person, is so undeserved, so unbelievable. Yet it's good news. It's the gospel. You know, and again, it's really easy just to believe that, you know, gospel is just, you know, a set of principles or truths and stuff like that. Friends, it involves that. But notice the last thing is that the gospel is God's relational invitation to let him rescue and set us free. It's God's relational invitation. The gospel is about a gift, a relationship, a person. And when, so what you do with this gift, this relationship, this person, this gospel, is everything. Because only Jesus Christ can set you free, set me free, with the freedom that he promises. All other bets are off. All other religions are based on us reaching up to God. Christianity says God in his grace reached down to us before we were even interested. Amazing. And so I wanted to read something to you that I thought a lot about whether or not I should read this, but it just hit me so hard. Maybe this will help you. Donald Miller, who wrote Searching for God Knows What, shares this story about how he went to teach a Bible class, a class of Bible college students. He said, I, pre I presented a form of the gospel but left out a key element to see if they would notice. I told them in advance that I was going to leave out a critical element of the gospel, and I asked them to listen carefully to figure out the missing piece, see if you can notice what he's leaving out. I told them man was sinful, and this was obvious when we looked at the culture we lived in. I pointed out specific examples of depravity, including homosexuality, abortion, drug use, song lyrics on the radio, newspaper headlines, and so on. Then I told the class that man must repent and showed them scriptures that spoke firmly of this idea. I used the true life example I'd heard from a preacher about a man in Missouri who, warning people of a bridge that had collapsed, shot a flare gun directly at oncoming cars so they would stop before they drove over the bridge to their deaths. 
I said, I was like that man, shooting flares at cars, and they could be mad at me and frustrated, but I was saving their lives because the wages of sin is death, and they had to repent in order to see heaven. I then pointed to scripture about the wages of sin being death and talked about the length, at length of how sin separates us from God. Then I spoke of the beauty of morality and told the story of a friend who chose not to cheat on his wife and so now enjoys the fruits of his marriage, committed in love to his wife, grateful that he never betrayed the purity and beauty of their relationship. I talked about heaven and how great it will be to walk on streets of gold and how there will probably be millions of miles of mountains and rivers and how great it will be to fish those rivers and sit with our friends around a fire beneath a mountain peak that reaches up into the stars so thick we could barely imagine the beauty of the expanse. I gave class the class statistics regarding teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, going into detail about how their lives could be God-honoring and God-centered and how they would be saved from all that if they would only repent. And this would give them a sense of purity and a feeling of fulfillment on earth and that God would provide for them in relationships and in finances and in comfort. When I was done, I rested my case and asked the class if they could tell me what it was that I had left out this gospel presentation. I waited as a class of Bible college students who that year had read several textbooks about Christian theology, who had read the majority of the Bible, all of whom had taken evangelism class only weeks before in which they went door to door to hundreds of homes and shared their faith using pamphlets that explained the gospel, who had grown up in Christian homes attending strong evangelical churches, who had taken both New Testament introduction and Old Testament introduction, sat there for several minutes in uncomfortable silence. None of the 45 students in the class realized I had just presented a gospel without once mentioning the name Jesus. The story bears repeating. I presented a gospel to Christian Bible college students and left out Jesus. Nobody noticed. Even when I said I was going to neglect something very important, even when I asked them to think very hard about what it was that I had left out, even when I stood there for several minutes in silence. Donald Miller writes, to a culture that believes they go to heaven based on whether or not they are morally pure, or that they understand some theological ideas, or that they are very spiritual, Jesus is completely unnecessary. At best, he's an afterthought a technicality by which we become morally pure. I assure you these students love Jesus very much and they were terrific kids whom I love being with. It's just that when they thought of the gospel, they thought of the message in terms of a series of thoughts or principles, not mysterious relational dynamics. The least important of the ideas to this class was knowing Jesus. The least important of the idea was that one is relational with Jesus. And friends, I want to talk about that with you this morning because this is what's going on in Galatia is that these people started out with this relationship with Jesus and then they started mixing it with all these ideas and other things besides Jesus. And if you want a definition of the gospel this morning, it's this simple. The gospel equals Jesus plus nothing. And so we thought we'd just show you here kind of what's going on in this letter. The Apostle Paul is trying to say, look, this is what we talked about when I met you there in Galatia, that the gospel, the gospel is Christ plus nothing. There's nothing you can add. You can't improve on it. You can't make it better by everything you do. You can't do enough penance. You can't do enough stuff. The gospel is not Christ plus something. The gospel is Christ 
plus nothing. But he said, so quickly. I mean, I'm shocked at what happened. Like, who talked you into this? Who fooled you? Why did you change your mind? He said, you guys are turning to another gospel. And this another gospel, you're, you're saying Jesus plus Moses. Not Jesus plus nothing, but Jesus plus Moses and keeping the law and making sure you eat the right foods and you sit with the right people and that you get the right religious rites and all those kinds of things. He says, if you are depending on that to make you right with God, you're in trouble because this is another gospel. This is not what I taught you. And some people might say, well, what's the big deal? He says, because when you do that, you begin, you go back to a bondage. Does anybody understand what it's like to be on a treadmill of your own good works? Does anybody know what it's like to live constantly wondering if you've done enough for God? Does anybody wonder if, what do I do to measure up? And you're constantly under that kind of oppression. Paul says, if you decide to sign up for another gospel, you not only have turned to another gospel, you're deserting the one who invited you into this gospel of grace. Don't do it. And you know, the truth is, what he's saying here is another gospel is really no gospel at all. It is not good news. It is bondage. And so, friends, where are you? Have you received the gospel? You may have heard it, but have you received the gospel? The good news that God has, not just for extra credit Christians, for you. Have you not only received the gospel, but are you living the gospel each day? Where you wake up each day and say, this day is a gift. Jesus Christ has already solved my biggest problem, my separation from God. And now he wants to show me how to live every day with him. I used to live for myself. I used to live how I thought. Now I can just say, Jesus, show me how to understand a whole new way of life. And Paul said, I'm getting more and more understanding. It's a growing process. But I am growing into this freedom, and it's making me a more freed up person. I don't even have to be afraid of people killing me or stoning me anymore. Because now I know who I am in Christ. And so we want to just ask you, have you received the gospel? Have you, are you living the gospel? Where is it for you? Because, friends, if you do not live by the true gospel, you'll be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And all of us are susceptible to this, aren't we? All of us can go back to the old ways we used to think about. All of us say, well, I'll just help Jesus a little bit. Maybe if I do this, he'll be even more pleased with me. He can't be more pleased with you than he already is in Christ. What a freeing message. Do you realize how loved you are? The only way you'll realize that is if you realize how wicked you are. More than you ever thought. And then you realize how much he rescued you and loved you. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what we have to share with the world. And I, for one, want all my friends who don't know Jesus to know him and to know the life that's possible because it's really a life of freedom compared to what we think freedom is. So as we close, as you see there at the bottom there, if you're looking at the equation, the gospel is Christ plus nothing. Another gospel, which is no gospel at all, is Christ plus anything else. Christ plus something. Christ plus anything else. There's nothing you and I can add. So as we close, 
Let me just read to you the words of an old hymn that may be helpful, and I haven't forgot the last line of the note, so I'll be back with you. Here's what one man once wrote. These words are older, but listen, they're full of meaning. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And when a person realizes that's exactly what Jesus came to do, he gave himself for our sins to rescue us and set us free, then that song becomes a great song. And um, that has everything to do with freedom. Because people that live in that kind of reality are more free than people that don't. So here's what I want to ask you to do. You see that last sentence in the notes? It just simply says this, Christ Jesus, teach me to live in your freedom this week. Would you say that with me? Christ Jesus, teach me to live in your freedom this week. Now, I just want to ask you, if you'd be willing, what if you were to pray that? What if all of us were to pray that often throughout this next week? Just say, you know what? I've heard about this freedom. I need you to teach me a lot more about your freedom. I need you to teach me how to live in this freedom because I sometimes get burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Christ Jesus, teach me your freedom. Would you say it one more time? Christ Jesus, teach me your freedom if we make that our prayer as a church. So let me bow, and then we'll be dismissed. There will be people waiting down. I want to invite the prayer team to come down front. They're always available, friends, if that could be a, a benefit to you to talk with someone either about receiving the gospel or about what it would mean to get more involved in this church family or just you have prayer requests or you have questions, whatever it might be, you're welcome down front any Sunday. Now, Lord, I want to pray. I don't know what's happened as we've talked about the gospel, but I pray that it's become clear that the gospel is a relationship with you. It's a gift that we could never buy, but you have given so freely in Christ. Please, Lord, show us how not only to receive it, but to live in it and to grow in the freedom that comes with the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.